Welcome to the Ignatius Press Podcast. I'm Mark Brumley. I hope you enjoy the discussion in this episode. For more information about Ignatius Press, check out our website at ignatius.com. Hi, my name is John Harriet. I work at Ignatius Press. And we're here today with Fiorella de Maria. She has written a series of detective novels, which are called the Father Gabriel Mysteries, the latest of which has just arrived in print, um, Death of a Scholar. So we're going to be talking to her today about um, her books and her creative process and uh, just her writing in general. So welcome, Fiorella. Well, it's lovely to be on the show again. So... My first question for you would be, uh, what? how did you kind of get into writing fiction? Well, I've always wanted to be a writer since I was about seven. Um, I would pay good money never to see anything I wrote before I was about 20, probably. Um, <laughs> but I, I always loved writing and loved, um, loved writing poetry, short stories. I tried everything. I was encouraged to, to really experiment. And... I really wanted to do it as a career, but of course, it's a very difficult world to get into. I wrote the manuscript for my first novel the summer I graduated from university. I was 21 and I had it all planned out quite carefully. You know, I was going to write this um, this epic bestseller and and then I'd probably be a really famous writer by the time I was maybe 22. Uh, it doesn't work like that, but the, the desire to write and create started very early and I just feel very privileged to be able to write as a career now. And so the types of uh, novels that you've written so far, uh, some I would say you would fall into the category of genre fiction, like the um, uh, detective novels, and then some more into the thriller category, but some I would say are more into what you would probably call literary fiction or historical fiction. Yeah, um, I'm relieved that some of them fall into the literary fiction category. That's that's what I most love uh, to write. But I've always had an interest in crime fiction. Um, I read my first Sherlock Holmes mystery far too young and scared myself to death reading The Mystery of the Speckled Band. I was waiting for a snake to come slithering onto my pillow at any moment. Uh, but I, I just love the puzzle, love the the human interactions, the personalities involved in, in crime fiction. And so it, it was almost, it was an accident waiting to happen. Eventually I was going to write my own detective, having read Conan Doyle and Agatha Christie and P.D. James, pretty much anything I could get hold of. But it was it was finding a, a detective who isn't just a stereotype. There are so many fictional detectives. Finding one who's just a little bit different was the challenge. And after that, the stories, I won't say they write themselves because there's a fair amount of blood, sweat, toil and tears. But the once the character comes to life, then the whole the whole setting sort of comes to life as well. So that was one of the um, things that I I thought was might be interesting to kind of delve into is the character of Father Gabriel. He is he's uh, there have been other clerical detectives like Father Brown, uh, Mm -hmm. Brother Cadfell and over on the uh, Jewish side, there's Rabbi Small, of course. But uh, there's something kind of unique about um, Father Gabriel, he's he's got a lot of quirks to his personality and his his character that really make him stand out as as unique. 
Can you kind of go, go into what went into conceiving of the character? Yes, I wanted to make him an English Benedictine, partly as a nod to Brother Cadfile, who is, of course, a medieval monk, a medieval sleuth. Um, what I found was, um, I love the Brother Cadfile stories and the Father Brown stories and all the rest, but I wanted to create, as far as possible, a clerical detective who is convincingly a priest and a monk, um, as well as having, as you say, a, a quirky side to him. All detectives are a little anarchic, all fictional detectives. They're either the Sherlock Holmeses who are openly hostile to Scotland Yard or they're the Lewises and the Morses who are policemen but who like to just push themselves out on the edge, who are constantly in conflict with their superiors. So with Father Gabriel, the the idea of him being slightly autistic which is a thread that runs through his personality. It, it means he has these sometimes rather disastrous social interactions where he misreads other people's behaviour and also the way he is very obsessive. When he gets an idea into his head, he can't let it go. And that's in many ways inspired by my eldest son, who is on the spectrum and has a lot of those traits. Um, but also, what I noticed, a level of innocence that... The autistic mind doesn't seek to deceive, therefore it cannot be deceived quite so easily. So with someone like Father Gabriel, he has a, an almost a childlike innocence to him. He, he doesn't like to have to tell fibs. He doesn't like to have to mislead people. Um, but it means that other people can't deceive him because he can see through things in, in, a, very, in a very clear way. So that's where his personality really develops. And the setting is also interesting because it's uh, it's immediately post-war, and uh, so that's the aftermath of World War II, which uh, readers here in the United States will, of course, be familiar with 1950s Americana. We, it was a boom time in our economy. Uh, there was uh, general widespread optimism, but the experience mm -hmm. in England uh, was very different. Yes. I mean, the... The detective stories are set in the late 40s, so you're not even quite getting into the 50s. I think really with Britain in the 50s, you did have the beginnings of coming out of austerity and you had you know, the coronation, you know, Queen Elizabeth. Um, a lot of people bought their first television sets to be able to see the coronation. Um, so that was the first time technology like that was coming into people's homes and, and things like that. But in the early years after the war, it was a very difficult time. You had huge austerity. Rationing carried on for years after the end of the war, which a lot of people don't realise. Uh, meat rationing, sugar rationing. So diet was pretty poor. You know, you, you couldn't have lots of lovely fashions because clothing was, was still on coupons. It's, there was still very much a war footing. We still had national service that carried on uh, for quite some time afterwards. But it was also a time of huge social change, or the beginnings of huge social change. The days of imperialism were coming to an end and the beginnings of the welfare state were starting. You had a Labour government for the first time being elected. Churchill was out. It very much felt like a new order. Uh, the beginnings of the National Health Service, all of these things, Homes for Heroes, all started in the 40s. So you've got a country in the late 40s that's really finding its way in the post-war world. You've got the beginnings of the Cold War threat 
starting mm-hmm. to, of course, you had that in the US as well, the fear of the bomb and, and all of the rest. But so it was a, a complex time. And also, you had a lot of people coming back from the war, huge numbers of refugees arriving in Britain from Eastern Europe, uh, former displaced persons. And you had people with secrets, people trying to reinvent themselves, people trying to deal with their guilt. So it was a real, um, it was a real cauldron of uh, conflict, unresolved conflicts and change. Yeah, that, that's one of the things that uh, plays big into the first book in the series, um, yeah. where there, it, it involves people who are refugees. But in, carrying throughout, there, there are people who have a real woundedness from what they mm-hmm. did or didn't do during the war and how that plays yeah. upon the situations that they find themselves in. Yes, and I think one of the one of the things I'm really exploring in the series is that in many ways, I won't say that there are no survivors after a war, but I don't believe anyone comes out of it unscathed. There are always many, many people who may have come out in one piece, but who are going to have to struggle one way or the other with things that happened. And even though I believe the Allies were undisputedly on the right side there were atrocities on both sides as is explored in in some of the books and plenty of people coming home from the war with maybe things they're not so proud of uh people who've been tested in ways that most people never have to experience you know life and death situations trying to save their families and and all the rest so that's really what i'm trying to explore in the books every book looks at a different aspect of the war um, including more obscure areas like the SOE, for example, what they were doing on the home front, um, people who've witnessed massacres, uh, stolen Jewish art. All of these themes come into come into the story. So the, the latest one, Death of a Scholar, which is the one that just came out, this one, I mean, a lot of times people will typify British mysteries as, that are period setting as being sort of cozy and... and there well, are certain yeah. aspects of that, but this one, I mean, there's a big connection to worldwide events that is happening in the background of this book, uh, which brings to the forefront, uh, you know, what are people's responsibilities and culpability for the things that they do, uh, even if, it, if they regard it as being an abstract sort of academic exercise. But can you kind of go into the, without spoiling anything, a little yes. bit about the plot of this New novel. I have to be so careful whenever I'm talking about a detective story. I don't give away the ending, but but yes, it's looking at the collusion of scientists, um, and of course, I, I was discussing with a friend quite recently about the dropping of the bomb on Hiroshima, and his view was, well, we kind of had the debate afterwards. Um, people don't really have ethical debates during wars; they just do things, and then we we battle afterwards to to, to think about whether that was really justified or not. But of course. A lot of a a politician, a president made the decision to drop the bomb, but a lot of scientists were involved in using their knowledge to create that. And there's a YouTube channel called Periodic Videos, which is it's a science. It's a science series my children quite enjoy. And the professor who fronts this uh, this series talks about the fact that he. Work, he's worked with plutonium. He said, well, if I had been another generation, would I have worked on the bomb and would I have had to think about 
whether this was an acceptable application of science. And, and he said you know, he felt he was blessed that he wasn't a member of that generation. He didn't have to have that conversation. But of course, you don't choose when you were born. And one generation did have to think about it. So the book looks very, very closely at uh, really collective responsibility and indirect responsibility. And of course, it doesn't just apply to scientists. We have these conversations in bioethics. If my tax money goes to fund abortion, for example, am I responsible indirectly? If my company make tools, surgical tools, which could be used in that situation, am I responsible? You know, we, we constantly have these conversations and we need to do so. Um, I would like to say just before I, I end that point, that it's set in Cambridge. And as far as I know, no Cambridge scientist was involved in the practices I describe in the book. And I feel the need to say that, uh, just in case I, I, I seem like I'm trying to implicate my old university. It, it, that, that, much is, that much is fictional. The setting is fictional. It, it also gets a little bit into the ethical implications of uh, the peace movement during the war, too. Yes. Um, that's another aspect of the book. Mm. Yes, I don't know how big the peace movement was in the US because I know that obviously the US came into the war a little bit later and under slightly difficult, different circumstances. But in Britain, after the First World War, the peace movement was quite popular, as you can imagine. Um, people reeling from an incredibly bloody conflict, which many f had felt by the end was pretty futile. But as it became obvious that Hitler was going to rearm, was going to go to war, appeasement had failed. Once the war started in 39, the peace movement, I won't say it completely disappeared, there were conscientious objectors, but it, it most people were behind the war. The majority were behind the fighting of the war. So they became very much persona non grata. And they were in some cases connected up with the fascist movement or they were labelled as being pro-fascist because uh, the implication was that they were siding with Hitler, which is why they didn't want a war. Um, there were people who didn't want a war because they thought we should be friends with Germany, but many people were also sincerely pacifist. So you see in, in the book the way they are perceived um, the very strong feelings people had about the peace union, um, thinking that they were traitors, feeling feeling betrayed by them, um, or, or at the very least thinking they were, you know, a little eccentric, and the difficulties for a young scientist who is struggling with her own ethical position. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the novel as well, we get to each each novel. It feels like you get another peek into the backstory of Father Gabriel, like how he yes. became the man that he that he is. And we gradually learn, you know, that he he is a little bit of a later vocation. And he did mm -hmm. have a, a bit of a life that happened uh, before he entered into the priesthood. So um, can you, without, again, spoiling anything, mention a yes. little bit of that and his connection with Cambridge that brings him into the situation that he finds himself in the novel? Yes, you see in the earlier novels, it is mentioned that he had had a wife and a child. Um, it's not clear initially exactly what happened, but you know he is a late vocation and that he found his vocation under tragic circumstances. His family, his in-laws, if that are from Cambridge, he met his wife at university, as so many people do. And so when he goes back to Cambridge, he has to face his former in-laws, he has to face his wife's, his dead wife's family. And 
he is not sure how they will respond to him. And you see in in the midst of a book that is dealing a lot with guilt and people's struggles with guilt, his own guilt. He's convinced his in-laws will not want to accept him because they will think it was his fault. And in fact, he has a very different experience. So the, um, I'm going to backtrack a little bit from the book back into the general uh, detective fiction, uh, you know, kind of broader overview, uh, just because I think it's interesting. But um, one of the things that is sort of interesting looking back over the last century of, uh, or century and a half of detective fiction is how many uh, writers of, of detective fiction were Christian or Catholic? Yeah. You have Dorothy Sayers, you have um, Monsignor Ronald Knox, who wrote some of his own detective stories, which I, I believe he was told to stop publishing at some point. Uh, <laughs> uh, G.K. Chesterton, uh, Graham Greene, uh, of course, he wrote his m- many great literary novels, but he also wrote genre fiction, uh, which he called entertainments. Yeah. So what do you yes. think uh, attracts the... Uh, the Christian or Catholic writer to this particular genre? Well, I think it's it comes down to the search for truth and the belief in justice. And what you get in a detective story is that something terrible happens, some very heinous crime, usually murder, not always, but usually murder occurs. And a whole lot of lies and deceptions grow up around this crime. And then the detective's job is to seek the truth and to seek justice for the victim. And you see through the course of a story like that, the restoration of the natural order. And of course, that is very Christian. That's very much within the moral universe of of the Catholic faith. Yeah, it's also um, something that you know, Chesterton brings up a lot with his Father Brown stories is the idea of a priest especially being kind of finely attuned to you know the repercussions of sin because as uh, uh, Pope Benedict says it's like sin is always damaging the relationship between us and others there's no solitary sin always has some sort of ripple effect and uh, you really do see that in these um, in in these sorts of stories. Yes. And part of making Father Gabriel a priest meant that I could look at when it comes to catching a a murderer, obviously all detective stories are about trying to find the culprit in a situation. But of course, if the detective is also a priest, they're having to think about that person's soul. That, you know, that actually it is always a tragedy. Someone, you know, particularly setting the the book in the the series in the 40s, someone is going to hang. and has to be prepared to meet his maker having committed a mortal sin. Uh, The family of the victims are going to struggle to forgive. There's going to be all sorts of spiritual battles surrounding that crime. And that's something that the priest detective ought to be also concerned with the soul as well as the the, the solving of the puzzle. Hmm. The... the, um... Other thing that uh, that strikes me about um, the idea of a priest as as detective is that in a certain way, you know, and aside just from the caring for someone's soul, as priest, you are you inadvertently, you know, uh, you kind of become spiritual father to those who you are encountering. 
whether or not, whether or not they want to accept or reject that sort of spiritual fatherhood. Um, and a lot of the sort of awkward interactions that Father Gabriel has with people, it, it seems is part of it is him trying to figure out his uh, his role in in speaking to them. Like, does does he address them as priests? Does he address them as just another person? Especially people in who come from his past life. He has a real awkwardness in talking to some of his old friends from Cambridge now that he's a priest. Yes, and of course it's heightened by the fact that at the time, I mean, I'm not sure it's so easy now, but at the time there was still a huge amount of sectarianism and prejudice against particularly Catholic priests. So for some of his old friends, it would be very strange that he'd become a priest. They might have been able to cope with the fact that he was Catholic. They would find it very odd that he'd gone and um, taken the cloth. Um, He particularly in rural areas where people tend to be a little bit more suspicious. He's always going to be a bit of an outlier, but he's able to use that to his advantage because being an outsider, sometimes you can look in and see things maybe you don't see when you're in the midst of it. But there's always going to be that awkwardness because, of course, in many times, in many occasions, he's talking to people who are not of the same faith, uh, who naturally feel a little bit disdainful, quite often rather patronising towards him. So he has to win their trust. And yet when he does win their trust, it comes quite quite easily. It's, it's an interesting observation that, um, this is kind of an aside, but my own uh, oldest, chi- uh, I mean, youngest child, his godfather is a priest who is on the autism spectrum. And mm-hmm. he has told me before that uh, as priest, uh, when he gets vested or when he puts on his clerics, it's much easier for him to to be to act as priest because he's he's dressed in this way, and now he acts this role. And um, it's interesting that in uh, it seems like some of the awkwardness with Gabriel um, in this latest book, if I remember correctly, is. He isn't wearing his clerics during some of it, and it and it makes him feel a bit yeah. odd and off. Mm. Yeah, that's actually a very interesting observation. I hadn't thought of that, but that really makes perfect sense, particularly when someone is on the spectrum. Uh, and of course, the, there's the added difficulty in Death of a Scholar that he's he's slipping back into a role where he was not a priest and where he never imagined he would be. You know, when he's talking to his in-laws, mm-hmm. he knew them when he was a married man. And so, yes, of course, there's that very, very strange, probably strange for them as well, sort of change that has come about, which, I, I, well, I won't say if it's really resolved or not resolved in the book, but yes, it's that, that's um, that's an interesting way to look at it. Yeah, as, as you can kind of step into a role as you vest or dress uh, that kind of helps you with that but then also once you one of the things that I've noticed about my own son who is on the spectrum is that uh, situations in which he has gotten used to a certain context it is very hard for him to readjust that context later so I can imagine that a priest like Father Gabriel going from the context where you describe of relating to people in one manner making an adjustment would be a very difficult thing to do. Yes, uh, absolutely. And it is what, I mean, I won't say that 
murder mysteries are ever comedies, but in some ways the, those moments he has, like when he's in the senior combination room and he's no idea what he's supposed to, who he's even supposed to be talking to, um, they do add a certain lightness to the to the story. You, you have to be able to sometimes not not take yourself too seriously, and I think Father Gabriel realizes the absurdity of the situation he's in at, at times. Yeah. So again, I'm going to hold up the book. I know on the podcast you can't see it, but this is the um, Death of a Scholar, the latest in the Father Gabriel Mysteries. The previous volumes are uh, See No Evil, uh, Vanishing Woman, and I mentioned earlier uh, the very first one is um, Sleeping Witness. Um, but uh, we've... Um, I've enjoyed reading these a lot, as not everybody may know listening to this, but I'm the series cover designer for this, these, and I read them cover to cover before I work on the on creating a book cover. And so I kind of get a preview before anybody else. And I've greatly enjoyed reading through these and coming up. I love your covers. I love your covers, John. And <laughs> and as I said, one day I'm going to talk to you about how you do it, because I having Having the need to spend 80,000 words putting out an idea, I'm intrigued by how you can take 80,000 words and put it into one picture. I think it's fascinating. <laughs> well, it's, it's been fun because uh, I did tr try to take the inspiration of the novels of that time and uh, you know come up mm -hmm. with something that looked like it could have been printed back then. So yeah. uh, you know, late 1940s, early 50s, graphic design style. So... As a as a design nerd, it was it was fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I liked what you did with this thing of darkness, with the whole you know, the creepy the creepy face. Oh yes, yes, that, that yeah. was uh, the other recent novel co-authored with uh, KB Turley, which is on um, Bela Lugosi. Uh, which is people should look that one up too. This thing of darkness. This thing of darkness. Yeah. Well, thank you for um, taking the time to speak to us today, and. Um, are there any uh, upcoming projects that we should be aware of? Well, I've uh, recently contributed a book to the Vision series on um, Maximilian Kolbe, Hero of the Holocaust, which was wonderful to have the privilege to write, and um, hopefully another coming out next year. So watch this space. Yeah. So the Vision series uh, for, you know, ch these the Father Gabriel series, of course, is not for children. Um, uh, but uh, the uh, vision series is for children and uh, the story of uh, Maximilian Kolbe, uh, St. Maximilian Kolbe is, is a really wonderful one and uh, so if you, if you have kids between the ages of 9 and 14 those are, yeah. you should definitely look that one up too alright well thank you so much for joining us today and uh, hope we can talk to you again soon this podcast has been brought to you by Ignatius Press. We encourage you to check out our books and videos at your local Catholic bookstore or wherever else books and videos are sold. You can also sign up to receive special discounts on books and videos at Ignatius.com. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please like the podcast on the website or app from which you listen to it. And please tell your friends about it. I'm Mark Brumley, and on behalf of everyone at Ignatius Press, Thanks for listening.